are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. It's David Guzik here. I'm glad you could join me for this afternoon time where we get together on YouTube and I spend some time answering your questions, or at least doing the best I can to answer your questions. I don't for a moment believe that I have the answer to every question about the Bible, church history, or the Christian life, whatever it might be, but I'll just do the best I can getting together uh, with you on these Thursday afternoons whenever I'm able to. I would like to say this, that uh, if you don't know myself, I want to introduce myself to you, and if you do know me, it may be because of the commentary on the entire Bible that I have online that's available to anybody uh, free of charge there at my website, EnduringWord.com, and also at another great Bible resource called the Blue Letter Bible. You can just look up that uh, on the internet, Blue Letter Bible. That's another tremendous Bible resource. Uh, so today I want to begin with simply starting with a lead question that we do every single week here. The lead question for this particular week is something that came in as a comment on one of our uh, YouTube videos, and it's a comment from Hector. Hector asks this question, why does God want our love? You know, Hector, I think that that is such a great question. It's such a simple question. It's such a basic question. But at the same time, I would like to say that I do think it is a tremendous question, and I want to thank you for asking it. Why does God want our love? Now, sometimes the best way to begin an approach to these kind of questions, theological questions, questions about the Christian life and such, is to begin by first answering it in the negative. So let me give you four reasons not why God wants us to love him. Okay, it's not because God is, number one, a narcissist. You know, as if God is this self-centered being in the universe where it's all about him and he wants everything focused upon him. It, it is remarkable to consider the modesty of God. How God does so much in this world and does not make it overtly obvious, at least on some level, that he has done it. Look, God is responsible for every breath that we breathe in some way or another. Yet, in his modesty, God holds back. If God were a narcissist, he would not have the modesty that he displays throughout all of creation and throughout all of his dealings with men. It is true that the heavens declare the glory of God, and for those who have the eye to see it, all creation speaks of his glory. Yet even in the way that the heavens declare the glory of God, and all creation declares his, his uh, honor and his majesty and his power, he nevertheless finds a way to do it that is at the same time modest. So it's not because God is a narcissist. Why does God want our love? Well, it's not because God is insecure. As if, you know, God is up there in heaven and he's really insecure and he just needs some cheering up. He needs some encouragement along the way. 
and he's just hoping that some people will love him and lift him up from his depression or lift him up from his feelings of insecurity. No, that's not the reason why either. Listen, God is totally secure in who he is and what his plan is for all time. And I'll say this as well, that another aspect to consider from this is that um, we know that God as well, he does want our love, but it's not because God needs our love. Now, look, I, I could make a tangential argument for arguing why God needs our love. But on the most part, in the main aspect, I would say this, God doesn't need love. If all of creation would to perish, God would still exist, and his existence would not be affected by the perishing of all creation. No, in that grand, greater sense, God does not need our love in that sense. I'll add one more. It's not because God is needy in any way. God has the characteristic that theologians sometimes call aseity. And aseity just means the idea that God is self-existent. He does not depend on anything or anyone else for his existence. That's not true of us. It's amazing and maybe even a little bit frightening to think of all the things we depend on for our existence. That's not God. He is not needy in any way. So, again, coming to Hector's question, why does God want us to love him? It's not because he's a narcissist. It's not because he's insecure. It's not because he needs our love. It's not because God is needy in any way. Now, let me talk about some of the reasons why God does, in fact, want our Well, I'll put it to you this way. God wants our love, first and foremost, because God is love, and love must exist in relationship. I mean, really, that's what love is all about. Love must have relationship to exist. God is love. Now, by the way, that's not the same thing as saying that love is God, but we can definitely say it because the scriptures tell us this in 1 John. God is love, and love exists in relationship. So that not only means that God does love us, which I'll talk again about in just a moment, but he wants us to love him in relationship. That's number reason number one. Reason number two. It's because God has made us in his image. God has designed us for relationship with him. It is hardwired in our design that there is something empty. There is something missing in humanity until we have relationship with God. It might have been Augustine the early church theologian who said this, if it wasn't him who first said it, certainly he was one of the first to say it, that God has made a God-shaped void or vacuum in every human being, something that's missing in us that can only be fulfilled in him. And that thing that can only be fulfilled in him 
that's part of the love that we give to him. And again, he designed us for that kind of relationship. So God simply wants us to fulfill our design. You see, it's because God wants what is best for us. God wants for us what will bring us true fulfillment. And loving God is one of the things that will bring us true fulfillment. Look, I, I'm going to use a little bit of a silly illustration here, so please don't, don't take this illustration too far. But you could say, um, why does God want us to love him? Well, why does your mechanic want you to change your motor oil in your automobile? It's because that's how your automobile was designed. We were designed to love God in religion. And that's a great reason why he Now, it's also because the love that existed among the persons of the Trinity was so great that it was compelled to increase the circle of that love. And if God bestows that love upon us, then it is just right, it is just appropriate for us to return that love to him. Remember that great verse from 1 John, where it says, we love him because he first loved us. That's why we love him. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. That is our ground of love. That is our security in love, knowing that he first loved us. And then I'll give you one more reason. God wants us to love him because we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is, believers are. And uh, Jesus himself loved God the Father in an ultimate sense. There was nobody ever who walked this earth who loved God the way that Jesus did, loved God the Father. So, because we're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, he wants us to have that same love. So, Hector, I hope this answers your question. There are many reasons why not, if I could use that awkward phrasing, God wants us to love him. And then there are many reasons to understand why he does want us to love him. The most pointed answer I would say is because it fulfills our design. It fulfills whom he made us. Now, let me give you just a couple more thoughts on the love of God before I go to the live stream and take whatever questions. We should understand that the greatest proof of God's love has already been given to us. That is, what Jesus did for us at the cross. You see, if you want to love God more, the key to loving God more is not found in resolutions or commitments. I'm going to make myself love God. No, more. No, the, the, the key to loving God more is found simply in this, in receiving his love on a continuing and, if possible, on a deeper level. We love him because he first loved us. And if you want to grow in your understanding of God's love for you, go to the cross. The greatest proof of God's love for us has already been given. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, this is understanding not only that God loves us in the present tense, 
but that he loved us in the past tense, and I would say in an ultimate and in a definite sense, he loves us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, that's something decisive in the past. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says this, that yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, in the past tense. At the cross is where Jesus loved us in the ultimate sense. There is no greater demonstration of love, of God's love for you that he can give. Than what Jesus did. And so you, you can say, Lord, show me a fresh demonstration of your love. That's fine. But understand, God has already shown you and me the greatest demonstration. You see, it's at the cross where Jesus loved, the highest, greatest, most glorious demonstration of love, and understanding more of God's love for us is always going to be the key to understanding and to growing in our love. All right. Hope that helps you there, Hector. Let me go on now, taking a look over here and take a look at some of the um, answer or questions and comments here in our chat window. Sharon says, thanks uh, for glad for the new teaching. Yes, Sharon, glad to do this. I, I do want to say that on our regular YouTube channel, um, I'm putting up new teaching videos, teaching verse by verse through the Bible all the time. Really, uh, I love to do this, come on and do the question and answer thing once a week or whenever I'm able to do it on the YouTube channel. But really, what my core calling is, is to teach the Bible verse by verse. So every week, I think we're putting up three new teaching videos, including a teaching series that I'm doing primarily for you, my YouTube or podcast uh, audience. And that's simply uh, me teaching through the Psalms verse by verse through the entire book. So you're welcome for that, Sharon. Mike says, I just want to say thank you for your Bible commentaries, David. They've been such a blessing to me. God bless. Well, Mike, you're very welcome. Again, we've got that written Bible commentary at EnduringWord.com. Uh, where you can find a free commentary on the entire Bible. Also at EnduringWord.com, you'll find access to uh, that entire Bible commentary translated into Spanish. We're so pleased, again, that the entire verse-by-verse -verse commentary is already translated into Spanish. In addition, it's translated into Arabic and into Chinese in the New Testament. And we're working on the Old Testament in those books. And then we have several Old Testament bo uh, books of the Bible, otherwise, in a variety of other languages, just here and there, Italian, German, Tamil, on and on. So you're very welcome for that. Um, Sherry gives greetings and says that she loves Enduring Word. Mary, again, blessings on the commentary. It's wonderful to get all this great feedback. Um, Carolyn says, hi, Pastor David, what do you think about euthanasia? Well, Mary, again, you're talking about euthanasia, that idea of what some people call mercy killing. Uh, 
That is the idea of someone in some way committing suicide. And the idea usually behind euthanasia is that uh, this is somebody who has some kind of terminal disease or terminal condition that is choosing to end their life on their own terms instead of letting the disease run it. Um, Mary, I think that euthanasia is something to be avoided. And especially, it is not something to allow by law. We see this in nations that have liberalized, opened up their euthanasia laws, that soon uh, people are being pushed and provoked into accepting death, into committing suicide, essentially. Um, well before they should, and even for things that we would not describe as terminal diseases. Within the last few years, I remember reading a news report from Europe of somebody who committed euthanasia because, again, through the sanctioned state system, because they were depressed. This is not right. This is not right. It should not be codified in the law. Now, I know that people can make exceptions. They, they talk about, well, David, somebody is very near death. And instead of them, uh, you know, running it all the way out in the last painful few days, maybe the doctor mercifully gives them an overdose of a painkiller and they die. And, and listen, you can talk about theoretical situations like that or, or unique situations. That is an entirely different thing than codifying it into law and giving it state and official sanction. I think these things are a bad idea, even recognizing the tremendous pain and difficulty there are in these end-of-life situations. I don't want to minimize that in the slightest, but we see what happens when this door is open. Soon people sometimes even children, are pressured to uh, end their life through euthanasia because this thing is like a wedge that just gets in worse and worse. So I, I think it is very much against the biblical culture of life to put these things into law and about, allow them. Okay, let me continue on. Um, that was Caroline's question. Uh, Kristen asks a question, is God always on your mind? Do you feel bad if he's not always on your mind and you're enjoying life? Kristen, that's an interesting question. And I have to say, no, God isn't always on my mind in an immediate sense. Um, you know, I, I, I want to think that God is never far from being on my mind. But God is not the first thing on my mind at all times. And I don't feel guilty about that. I think God has given us the good things of this life to enjoy, to do it all with the realization that, as James says in his letter, that every good and perfect gift is from the Father above. We recognize that. Everything we are, everything we have, comes from God the Father above, and we thank the Lord. 
So I think it's good to live with the idea that God is never far from our thing. But I think it's a it's an unrealistic expectation to live in this constant idea that God is always first. God is always the first thing and the dominating thought in you. So I, I would define it more like that it's one thing for God to never be far from us, but not always the first. I, I hope that makes sense to you, my reply. Thank you for that. Uh, 2012 it says, Hey, David, so blessed by your commentary and series through John. I would like to talk to you in person about church planting. Well, 2012, all I can say is uh, I don't know if I regard myself an expert on church planting, but having planted uh, a couple of churches and having worked with a lot of church planters in the past, uh, probably have something to say about it. Uh, you can just email me through the normal channels or leave your email address. And um, somehow or another, Andrea, our admin director, or myself, will make note of that, and we can make connections somehow. Uh, Sharon says that it's comforting to me that God wants us to love him. Yes, it is comforting. Is it not? It gets back to the idea of relationship, that God wants us to have this real, this true relationship. Very much. Okay. Uh, continue on here. Now, Jesse asks the question. Hey, David, in Joshua 4, God commands them to plant 12 stones as a memorial for crossing the River Jordan. It says remains to this day. Would you happen to know if anyone has found this memorial? Well, Jesse, no. Um, I think there are, I, okay, somewhere in the file cabinet of my mind, um, I seem to remember somebody saying that they found some pile of stones when the Jordan was at a very low level, uh, or they found another pile of stones and they thought that it could be a, but, but there's been no conclusive find of those stones. Certainly not. So let, let me say this. It, it is true, but remember, it says that they remain to this day. That was to the day of when the book of Joshua was written. It, it doesn't mean to our present day, year two, 2020. It just means to the day when it was written in the book of Joshua. So uh, I would expect that in the days of the judges, uh, perhaps even to the days of um, Samuel and Saul and David, uh, in those days, it was true that those stones still stood as a memorial of God's tremendous work. Um, continuing on, Jane asked the question, David, in Genesis 12, I think when God tells Abraham to take his family and go to Canaan, why does he take Lot and family? Also, why does he stop before Canaan? Well, Jane, that is an excellent question. When we put together the account in Exodus, excuse me, Exodus, the account in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, and some mentions of this in the New Testament, in particular, in what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, in his great defense or sermon to the Sanhedrin, we, we draw together a few ideas that lead many people to this kind of ordering of events. That God spoke to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldeans, essentially Babylon, modern-day Iraq, and said, leave your family and your nation 
and come to the land that I will give you. And it seems that what Abraham did was he partially obeyed. He left Ur of the Chaldeans, but then he came to Haran. That's something of a midway point uh, until he would go to the promised land. And he brought with him his father, Terah. And so he partially obeyed God and went halfway and brought his family when God said, told him to leave his family. And then when his father, Terah, died in Haran, then he went to the promised land. But even then, he still brought some of his family, Lot, his nephew. So you could say that Abraham partially obeyed God in what he did. And as to the reason why he did that, well, why do any of us partially obey God? Sometimes we just don't have the faith or the obedience to truly step out and do everything the way that God tells us. So um, that, that's the reason I would give, is that this was partial obedience on Abraham's part. And again, we correlate this by taking a look at the mentions of Abraham's life, especially in Hebrews 11, Acts chapter 7, and comparing that with what we find in Genesis. So uh, why did Abraham partially obey? Because he's a lot like us, isn't he? I think that's, I guess, the great question for it. That's that's really what he's doing. He's just like us. So uh, continuing on here, next question. Conception uh, gives this question. Let me go back to this. Hello, I ran into the doctrine of mid-Acts dispensation. It teaches that we should only follow Paul's epistles today. What scriptures would you use to counter this? Thanks, you're a blessing. Well, conception, I would just say that there is nothing in the Bible that says that we should only follow Paul's teachings, Paul's epistles, and not follow the general epistles, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, the epistles of John, Revelation. There's nothing in there that says we shouldn't follow the general epistle. And there's nothing that says that we shouldn't follow the Gospels and the book of Acts. So uh, fundamentally, I would put the burden of proof upon those who say that we should only follow uh, the letters of But it just gets back to the doctrine of inspiration. We believe what Paul wrote in First uh, Timothy, that all Scripture is inspired by God, is God-breathed, and it is profitable. And that's all Scripture. But Paul never said, only my letters. Now, I believe that on some level, Paul understood that his writings would be Scripture. He includes them among that. And later, Peter makes a reference to the writings of Paul and includes them among the idea of Scripture. So I'm not trying to say that Paul didn't understand that his own writings were scripture, at least on some level. Nevertheless, there is nothing to indicate to us that Paul thought that only his writings were scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. So I I, I don't see any indication. Um, West says, um, how do you love a God you can't see? Well, here's the thing. We can know 
that people exist without ever seeing them with our own eyes. Um, I have never seen the president of the United States with my own eyes. Um, I just never have. Uh, now, I've seen video of him, but that's not seeing him. Look, the, people can do tricks with video, can they not? I've seen pictures. So I've seen what you might call secondary evidence of the president's existence. But I've never seen him or heard his voice in person. Uh, you could say that about a lot of people, a lot of celebrities, whatever you want to say. Now, you don't have to see God with your physical eyes to have great and confirming evidence that he exists. And for me, the evidence of God's existence is so overwhelming. And not only on a logical, theoretical level, which is true, but the evidence of God's existence is also so overwhelming on a personal basis that I don't need to see him with my physical eyes to know that he exists. Just like I don't need to see uh, this or that celebrity or the president of the United States or somebody else with my own eyes in an immediate sense to know that he exists. I would just say that there is more than enough evidence to believe in God's existence. I don't have to see him with my physical. I guess that's just a simple way to say it. Um, West asks the follow-up question. Also, how do you know that you're loving him correctly? West, I'm going to give you just a first impression on that. Um, I think that this is the kind of question that is a trap for a lot of people especially a lot of overly analytical people. Um, it's like they're always taking their spiritual pulse. Now, um, it's good to occasionally take your spiritual pulse. That's for sure. But to be obsessive in, am I loving God enough? Am I loving God enough? To, to be obsessive about that question, I think that's a great trap. There, there are many things in the Christian life that are good to check from time to time, but we must not obsess over them. So that, that's just simply what I would say. It's like if a person is driving an automobile, it's good to look in the rearview mirror from time to time. That's part of good driving. But if you're always looking at your rearview mirror, you're going to get in a crash. So we should not obsess over this, but... When it's good for us to look from time to time into this question, how do I know that I'm loving God correctly? I would just say this. Our love for God is just like any love relationship we have in this respect. That the things we do to cultivate a love relationship with anybody else, we can do those things with God and cultivate our love for him. Listen to him, spend time with him, speak to him, um, do things conscious of his presence, um, want to please him and honor him. 
all those are ways that if you have a love relationship in human terms, you know that if you do those things, your love relationship will be cultivated and blessed. It'll flourish. If you want your love relationship with God to do that, um, do those things. Thinking about another person, thinking wonderful thoughts about them will uh, make you love them more. Spending time with them will make you love them more. O on and on. So I would just say this. Do those things to cultivate your relationship with God. And that's a way that you can grow in your love. Okay, let me continue on. Um, Karen says, uh, do you believe in deliverance ministry? Okay, Karen, let me put it to you this way. Um, in the way that most delivery, min delivery, deliverance ministry is understood in the Christian world today, I don't believe it. I do believe, however, that there is a very valid and important work of partnering together with believers uh, for the sake of spiritual warfare, for the sake of partnering with a believer to be aware of what Satan's strategies and devices are, and to, uh, together with another believer, doing what James says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. I think that there is a place for us to help believers uh, together and, and to help another believer to resist the devil and see the devil flee from them. And a lot of times it has to do with understanding Satan's strategies and devices. So I, I do believe that there is an important an often neglected aspect of spiritual warfare um, that Christians should be more attuned to and active in, in their lives and in their church lives. However, what is classically understood as quote-unquote deliverance ministry in the church, no, I don't put a lot of stock in that. So I, I, I hope, uh, Karen, you understand what I'm saying. Um, it, it, I know I've answered it with a little bit of yes and no, or maybe the answer was no and yes, but, uh, but th that's really how I would explain my understanding of deliverance. Um, thank you, Mark, for your kind words. Sekiro, I hope I'm pronouncing your name there correctly, says, I have recently witnessed to a cult member, and she said that Jesus is not God, because God is spirit, not flesh. But can't love exist without the Trinity in which each person is each other's uh, affection? Well, Sekiro, you, you are correct on that. And I, I do just want to say that your, your cult member is just wrong on that. Yes, God is spirit. There's no doubt about it. But God is not limited by spiritual existence. God is also very much interested in and connected to the material. The idea that God, because he's spirit, can have nothing to do with the material world, at least in a connected sense, um, that's an idea of Gnostic 
philosophy, Gnosticism was an ancient Christian heresy. Um, but it, it, it isn't biblical. So yes, God is spirit, but there's a very real sense in which human beings are spirit. We are not only spirit, but we have a spiritual existence independent of our material existence. So we are spiritual beings, but we are also material beings. And Jesus Christ was and is both a spiritual being and a material being. Um, when he added humanity to his deity. So uh, the cult member who was discussing this with you just has a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of deity, the nature of God, and how it connects to things that are both spiritual and material. And you're absolutely right. There are many, many evidences of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. That word Trinity, it isn't found in the Bible, but it's a biblical idea that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, there are many places in the Bible that teach the idea of the Trinity, but one concept that supports the Trinity is the idea that um, because God is love and it is so essential to his existence, to who he is, that there always had to be someone for God to love. And before humanity was ever uh, created to be the objects of God, God uh, loved, there was love, I should say, within the persons of the Trinity. So again, that's, that's not the only evidence of the Trinity, but it's certainly one of them. Okay, let me continue on. Um, Puff Lumpen says, um, Josiah Trups from Germany here. I've really been enjoying your content here on YouTube lately. Well, I'm very, very happy to hear that. Uh, God bless the Trips family in, uh, in Germany. Uh, let me continue. Uh, Saibi, I believe the uh, name is there. Is God fair? Hmm. Let me put it to you this way, Saibi. God is not always fair. Let me explain that. God is never less than fair. Never. I love what Abraham said to the Lord. I can't remember in which chapter this is in the book of Genesis. When Abraham said to the Lord, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And of course he will. That, that was what we call rhetorical question. The answer to that is yes, of course, he will always do. There's never a doubt that God will do right. God will do justice. God will never do wrong by anybody. But then you say, well, then, David, how can you say that God is not always fair? Because God's mercy and grace sometimes go beyond what is fair to anybody. God is never less than fair to anybody. But God reserves the right to be more than fair. Than to whomever he chooses. So, um, if God were always fair, completely, unshakably, never changing, 
then I guess we would all go to hell because there would be no room for God's mercy, God's grace. So again, the way I like to express it is simply this. God is never, and I'll say it again, never less than fair, but he certainly reserves the right to be more. Okay, continuing on. Um, trying not to skip any questions. I'm sorry if I skipped your question. It's not uh, purposeful. Sarah says, thank you so much for your teachings. Pastor David, greetings from Portugal. Sarah, wonderful. Glad to know that um, I have people tuning in from Portugal. And if I could say this to you, Sarah, to anybody you know, I'm looking for Portuguese translators. Contact me if you know of somebody who could translate my Bible commentary uh, from English into Portuguese. And my first preference, not my only, my first preference would be to have uh, Portuguese translators to translate it into Portuguese. So if you know anybody, Sarah, that would be awesome. All right, let me continue on. Seth and Bobby says, hey, Pastor David, God used the virgin birth to bring the Lord Jesus into humanity. Was he bypassing the man because he passes on sin, or was there another reason? Um, uh, Seth, I think that is a reason for it. Uh, one of the reasons God decided that the Son of God would come, when he would add humanity to his deity, it would be done through the mechanism, if you will, of the virgin birth. Um, however, uh, in order that Jesus would not be born with a sin nature, that's really what you're referring to, that's why God did it. But I think we can say at the same time, that's not the only reason God did it. There are other reasons, perhaps, that we can't even perceive. Um, God knew that his entrance into the world had to have such a dramatic, such an important um, beginning. Um, that it had to be born a new Adam, a new sinless man. And the virgin conception, really more exactly, if you want to be technical, more than the virgin birth, was the way that. So, um, Seth, I would say that's what I think of as being the fundamental reason, but I would not limit it to that. Uh, I'll continue on here. Uh, Donald says, what do you say to a person who is not forgiven themselves? Well, that is a great question. What do you say to a person who is not forgiven? Donald, I would just say this. I would say, I understand how you feel. When you feel burdened by guilt and shame, you feel as though you have not forgiven yourself and you need to be released of this burden of guilt and shame. I understand the feeling. But let me say, in an ultimate sense, we do not have the right or the power to forgive ourselves. Do you remember in the Gospels when that paralytic was lowered before Jesus when he was preaching in a house? And Jesus looked at the paralytic and he looked at the men who lowered him down. And he said, uh, son, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders were outraged. 
uh, they thought in their minds, they didn't say these words, but they thought, who is he to forgive sins? Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And it's true. Only God ultimately has the authority to forgive sins. We need to understand that the real key to being free from the burden of guilt or shame that we may feel that we carry, the key to that is essentially receiving God's forgiveness and meditating deeply upon God's forgiveness. It is not fundamentally forgiving ourselves. So, to the person who says, I just can't forgive myself, I, I understand what you're going through. But instead of working up a methodology by which you can forgive yourself, put your focus, your meditation, your faith upon the fact that you are given. All right, Donald, I hope that's helpful. Let me continue on. Um, Jesse says, Thank you. Jane says, um, David, uh, my notes say that Moses wrote Genesis centuries after Abraham's life. Was Genesis the first written book of the Bible? Jane, um, I agree that Moses wrote the uh, book of Genesis. There is reason within the text of the book of Genesis to believe that what Moses actually did was compile the records um, that were passed on down to him from the patriarchs and perhaps early. Uh, th there's just certain markers in the book of Genesis that give this indication. So Moses was the author or perhaps the editor, the compiler in some sense of the book of Genesis. And then as well, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of Moses, as they're commonly called. Um, in many languages, in their Bible translations, they call Genesis not what we call the book of Genesis. They call it the first book of Moses. Exodus is the second book of Moses. Okay. Now, your, your question there is, was Genesis the first book written in the Bible? I don't think so. I think it's much better to understand that the first book of the Bible written chronologically was the book of Job. The book of Job has Hebrew expressions in it that are so old that translators can really only guess at what they mean. I think they can make pretty good guesses, but they're really only guessing. Um, I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar or expert. But the people who are Hebrew scholars and experts will tell you that it really does seem that the book of Job was the first one written chronologically. Uh, and then, uh, then perhaps the first five books. Um, continuing on, uh, Jeff says, other than your commentary, any recommendations for Ephesians? Well, I wish I had a better look at my um, bookshelf over here. Uh, look, anything you can get in the New Testament written by um, Leon Morris. And I don't know if Morris has a commentary on Ephesians. 
but anything in the New Testament, you can get by Leon Morris. He's a great New Testament. Um, John Stott has uh, a couple excellent works on Ephesians. Um, I'm trying to think of other good commentaries on Ephesians. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, I do believe, has a very good commentary. Um, other than that, I would have to look for references. Look, here's another thing you can do. Uh, if you go to EnduringWord.com and go to the About menu, you'll see a uh, section on the About menu that's bibliography. And you can use that bibliography link to look at the bibliography for all my different um, Bible commentary on the website. I think it's complete on there. Certainly it's complete for the New Testament. Um, so take a look, and you can look at many of the commentaries that I use. And I don't know if I would recommend every one of them as being the best, but you'll get a good description of the specific commentaries, the sources I use in my own commentary on the book of So I hope that's helpful there for you, Jay. Brenda asked a question. Um, what can I do if I want to receive the Holy Spirit but am afraid? Brenda, here's what I would simply say to you. Let not your heart be troubled. It's only a good thing to receive more of the Holy Spirit. And look, I, there, there's a sense in which we're speaking with imprecise terminology when we say receive more of the Holy Spirit. Because you could say, in a sense, really what we're doing is the Holy Spirit's receiving more of us. <laughs> We're giving more of ourselves. We're surrendering more of ourselves to God and to His influence. So that's really probably technically a better way to think of it. But don't be afraid to do it. Remind yourself again and again that God loves you and only wants good for your life. There are people who think, all right, look, I don't want to surrender everything to God. I don't want to yield myself fully to the operation of his Holy Spirit. Because if he does, if I do, then God's going to lead me into things I don't, things I don't. So God loves you. He cares about you. And he may lead you into some uncomfortable places. I'm going to be the first one to admit that that might be the case. But if God leads you into an uncomfortable place, it is only because he loves you. It is only because he loves you. It is only because he's working his best in your life when you and myself, we might have settled for what was comfortable. No, we don't want to settle for what's comfortable. We want God's best in our life. So, Brenda, I would just tell you um, God helping you, don't be. All right, uh, continuing on here, uh, Yahweh's daughter says, how do I know that my gifts or what he promised my life, or do I strictly go off the promises in the Bible? I watch prophets talk about uh, having messages for someone. How do I know it's for me, though? Well, Yahweh's daughter, the, the only way I could talk about this is just to pray that God would truly give you the gift of discernment and that you would um, understand that what God gives to you in his word is enough 
in any other leading or calling or gifting or direction that God gives to you as an expression of the promises in his um, God will make plain to you along the way. Just keep yourself in a submitted place to God and go forward and obey what he has for you in his word and believe and trust the promises in his word and be at peace in that. Um, don't agonize over whether or not a word is from God. Um, more so just say, Lord, I'm just going to pursue the things that I know are your will. And you have something to show me along the way, then Lord, show me. And, and then let God just show you and make it. It's also worth it to take counsel with a Christian friend who's maybe more mature in the faith than you are and to ask them in a very simple and pointed way. What do you think about this thing that I'm kind of dealing with? I'm not really sure if this is God's will for me or God's calling on my life or not. What do you think? It's great to take counsel with brothers and sisters who might know us well and have a sense of what God's word. All right, gonna kind of give a little two minute warning here. Uh, I'll only take a few more questions and questions that I did not get to, we're gonna storm away and maybe on a future question and answer session, we'll give priority to the questions that have come in on the live chat that I was not able to. Okay, here we go. Um, Golden Child says, how did Christ take an eternity's worth of wrath? Missed the question there. Uh, lots of questions today. Thank the Lord. How did Christ take an eternity's worth of wrath upon himself on the cross? Well, Golden Child, that's a good question. Um, but I would just answer it very simply. Because he's God. This is the wonder of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus Christ did something on the cross that no other human being could do. Because no other human being was both God and man. Jesus Christ, being the God-man, could endure the perfection of God's wrath. He could endure an eternity's worth of God's wrath in and of himself, and he could do it in a moment because he's God. Here's a thought to consider. If a mere human being, just like Adam, could be born sinless and live their whole life sinless, again, we're talking theoretically here, let's remember that. If they could be born sinless and live their whole life sinless and then die for the sins of humanity, it wouldn't work because they would only be human. It took the God-man to perform this ultimate work on earth. So um, that's a wonderful thing, I think, to consider. That's how he could do it. And again, Golden Child, I just want to say, that is an excellent question, but it's found in the fact that Jesus Christ is truly man and truly God. Okay, a couple more questions here. Um, ISUPK New Orleans says, um, you don't know the Bible, white man? Well, uh, I'm afraid I would disagree with you. I think I know something of the Bible. Uh, I'll let our viewers judge for themselves whether or not they think I understand anything from the Bible. 
Um, I'll just go down. Appreciate your context. I guess there's some chances. Okay, this would be the last question here from Nugget. Does hell exist? Why would we go to hell to feel pain? Pain was made so that you could tell if your body's getting hurt or if that makes sense. Okay, Nugget, I'll just simply answer your question like this. Um, just simply to say that, um, yes, um, hell is real. And what we understand about the sufferings of hell gives us reason to believe that, um, yes, it's real. And the sufferings of hell, we would say we understand by analogy. I don't know exactly what pain or suffering people will endure in hell, but it'll be real. It, it may not be exactly like what we suffer right now as either pain or suffering, but it will be real. And so that's just what we should understand, plainly, simply. What we have spoken to us about pain and suffering in hell is given to us in the only kind of analogy we can understand. You could say the same thing is going on in what the Bible communicates to us about heaven. We can't understand in fullness what the glories of heaven will be like. All the Bible can do is relate it to us in images and pictures that we can understand. The same is true for the description. So I, I would simply say that we know enough about hell in the scriptures to say that it's real and that it's terrible. But we don't know enough about it, just as much as we don't know enough about heaven, to say we know exactly what it will be like. All we do is have the communication in images that we can connect. Well, listen, I see that there's a great deal of controversy going on in the live chat. And I just say, uh, this does not disturb me much at all. Uh, God is a great God, and he loves even people who are filled with contention and hatred. And he would have them just turn their heart and their lives in surrender to Jesus Christ. God is rich in forgiveness for those who will repent, but for those who will harden themselves in their contention and in their hatred, those people must repent to get things right. I'm going to conclude it right here. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I, I don't know for certain if I'm going to be able to join you uh, next week live. If not live, I hope to have a pre-recorded version. I, I will be on a flight next Thursday, and I just have to determine whether or not the time will enable me to. So anyway, thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you and hope to join you again. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.